I think it's nice to go on a journey with a character and to be that invested that you feel like you're you're watching a movie. That's what I want for people, it to be as easy and so easy to connect with the storyline that it's just, you barely even feel like you're reading, like you're just lost and caught up in the storyline. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Rights for Women. It's an absolutely glorious day here in the Illawarra where I live and if you're watching on video you can see I have, I'm wearing a sleeveless shirt. I am all ready for going for a horse ride this afternoon after I have a Zoom meeting with my writing group. So it's a jam-packed day and I just wanted to pop in and do a very short intro to this week's episode which is Maya Linnell, guest host, chatting to Paige Toon. Paige is an internationally best-selling author who has spent some of her life living in Australia. She has over 16 books published and has sold over 2 million copies worldwide. So it's a really fabulous chat between Maya and Paige, and a lot of it is talking about Paige's latest release and also her writing process and all the usual things that you love to listen to on Rights for Women. At the end of that, do stay around because I am chatting at the end of this episode to Maya about her latest release, Kookaburra Cottage, and we are actually going to be doing a giveaway of Kookaburra Cottage in the next week on the socials. So keep an eye on the Rights for Women Instagram page if you'd like to win a copy of Kookaburra Cottage. And Maya and I, as we always do, get chatting about a whole lot of things to do with writing. So it's not just about her new release. There's a lot of writing goodness in there as well. So definitely hang around at the end. So it's actually a double guest episode with Paige Toon and Maya Linnell today. So I'm not going to spend too long with an intro. Writing-wise, I'm working on Out of the Ashes, my draft, which I have to have done by the end of October for my audio publisher, Belinda. But the quick writing tip I wanted to share this week, something that I've been doing with one of my writing buddies, Ray Cairns. Ray writes fabulous crime about ordinary women in very extraordinary and dangerous situations. So if you haven't caught Ray's books yet, do that. She's also been a guest host on Rights for Women and a guest herself. So watch out for Ray. But Ray and I are in the Inkwell Writing Group together with a bunch of other fabulous writers. And We've been trying to get each other on track in the last week, doing daily phone calls and check-ins and catch-ups about our writing, what we're doing, any issues we're having. And one of the things that we've found really helpful has been verbally brainstorming. So talking out any kind of problem or thing that we're stuck on or talking through options for characters, plot options, and we've both found that really helpful And I've also done that in conjunction with some on-the-page brainstorming. I'll just see if I can find the pages here. As you can see from my notebook, I've got reams and reams of notes because I do like to use pencil and paper to collate my ideas. But after Ray and I spoke, I sat down and just did a whole lot of brainstorming about possibilities for 
a particular character and actually came up with what I think is the answer and that is really giving the impetus to move forward with the story. So brainstorming, highly recommend it. Talking through ideas with a writing buddy or a friend, could be your partner, it doesn't necessarily have to be someone who is a writer, but all the better if it is, I reckon. And brainstorming on the page as well to really try and help you come up with those ideas and go wild with the brainstorming. Put down anything that seems to be even a vague possibility and it just helps to generate more and more ideas and then you have more to choose from. The last thing I'm going to leave you with today is something a little bit random, but as I was walking over here to the caravan to record this intro, I walked past a magnolia tree in our yard just outside our trip pen. I'm going to post photos of this on Instagram. This magnolia... Probably about two years ago, I think, we transplanted it. It had been in a garden too close to the house. It was going to get too big, so we moved it. Subsequently, deers came in because we used to get deer on the property until we had all the fencing done. Deers came in and chewed it down to, I reckon, about a two-centimetre height. Like it was literally a stick in the ground, a little twig. And I just thought, let's pull it out and start again. My husband said, no, no, it will live. It will survive. (laughs) Believe me. Have faith. Anyway, I scoffed and thought, no, there is no way. That magnolia tree is now over a metre tall, taller than me, probably about one and a half metres tall. It is covered in shoots and buds and it is about to burst into blossom. And as I always do in my life, comparing everything to writing, it reminded me of what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago with Stephanie Holmes' talk about Don't Give Up Before the Miracle And, you know, what if that had been a book or a story that I just thought, no, this is crap, dig it out, throw it away, never look at it again, don't nurture it, don't nourish it, don't believe in it, don't have faith. It wouldn't be about to burst into blossom with with one of the most beautiful flowers that I've ever seen on a magnolia bush. So there you go. A little bit of natural inspiration this week. If something has a possibility of growing and blooming, if you nurture it, and believe and trust and have faith, then don't give up. Have a great writing week. Enjoy this chat with Paige and Maya. I'm off to Zoom with Laura Boone and Ray Cairns, my Inkies buddies, and I'll catch you next week on Rights for Women. Welcome to the Rights for Women podcast, where you can get all the great information about books and writing. Today's episode is a takeover edition, and I'm your host today, Maya Linnell. I'm a rural romance author with Alan Unwin, and my latest book, Cookabara Cottage, is out now on the shelves of all good bookstores. Our special guest on today's podcast is Paige Toon, the British author and Sunday Times bestseller. Her latest novel, Only Love Can Hurt Like This, shot onto the top 10 bestseller charts with the Sunday Times instantly upon release. She's written 19 novels, several short stories. She's sold all around the world and is much loved. And you'll also recognise the names of the authors on the cover that sing her praises, people like Marion Keyes, Beth O'Leary, Christina Lawrence, just to name a few. Now, if you like a page turner, if you like a tearjerker, or if you like to swoon little, then you are in the right place. Grab yourself a cup of tea or pop those headphones in and head out for a walk. And let's check out what Paige has got to say about books and writing. So Paige, Only Love Can Hurt Like This went straight to the Sunday Times top 10 bestseller charts. Congratulations. That must be such a wonderful feeling. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. This is something I've waited for quite a long time. So yeah, and I just didn't think it would happen. And then my editor called me and I did scream down the phone. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think I would too. That's a fantastic accolade. Yeah, it's something like like I say, my books are always released at a really busy time of year for books. I think the number one that week was selling like 25,000 copies a week. And it's just it's so difficult to even get in the top 10. So I was thinking top 20 that might happen because they've done such an incredible job of putting so many copies out on the shelves and they've done a whole campaign with a TV advert and billboard and posters and stuff. So I thought maybe top 20, maybe even number 11, but yeah, top 10 was like, yeah, perfect. That's wonderful. And I saw some of your beautiful Instagram posts talking about that beautiful big promotional campaign that Penguin Books did for Only Love Can Hurt Like This. What is it like walking into a busy centre? Because was that London, that beautiful big billboard? Yeah, it was. That was like London Bridge, just around the corner from Southwark Cathedral and Borough Market. It was a really busy, busy sort of thoroughfare. That was a very surreal moment. It was amazing. Like just we walked, I did, I took a little video of a stop motion one, one so it was like really sped up when you watch it back, going from the tube station and then going through like Borough Market and then coming out and seeing the billboard. And yeah, it was, that was a really special. That's very cool. Now for the people that haven't actually read your wonderful books yet, how would you describe your writing style as a whole? I write emotional love stories and I think I used to write more sort of rom-coms, more light-hearted things, but in recent years my books have just had another level of depth and different layers of emotion and just going to much deeper, sometimes dark, quite dark sort of storylines. So that's, I call them emotional love stories. I think that's the best way of describing them. They're not, there might be some light moments in them, but they're not, you know, romantic comedy. So if you want to really feel it all, I think that's, those are the words. There's everything from love and passion and grief and hope and heartache. And it's a sort of book that will, should rip out your heart and then hopefully piece it back together. Well, it certainly had me feeling all the feels. I had tears. I was sitting at the breakfast table, which is, I think, exactly where I was sitting when I was finishing off your fantastic book was it a year or two ago and sitting there with my bowl of wheat bix and my Vegemite toast, just having a little bit of a sobbing to my breakfast and the children are walking past, making their lunch. And what's wrong, mum? I'm like, oh, page tunes, done it again. Yeah, someone I used to know. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah, again, just that one there. That was such an emotional book for me. Like I really found writing about children who are looked after and the care system and that side of things found such an emotional story but again I think that the cover in Australia for that didn't really reflect the content of the book it looks like rom-com from the outside and I think that's what I really love about Only Love Can Hurt Like This 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 cover makes it with this broken flower on the front it it's not going to be a light-hearted read and from the title you should be able to tell that too it is there's lots of really light moments throughout and it hopefully fun moments too but it does have that deeper heartbreaking there's a whole sort of secret in there that is just really sad and very emotional yeah <laughs> it was fantastic and for those who haven't yet picked it up as well how do you describe the book in a nutshell because we've got Ren, we've got anders we've got the indy 500 racing tell us a little bit more about it from your perspective the book is about Ren, and at the very beginning of the novel, in the prologue, she witnesses the moment that her fiancé realises that he's in love with his co-worker, and her intuition tells her that this look that they're sharing, is there's something behind it. And so we pick up with her again three months later when she's starting to come out of the other side of her heartbreak, and she's on her way to America to spend some time with her dad at his farm in Indiana. And she doesn't really know her dad that well, so there's a whole sort of family dynamic there. Her dad left her mother and Ren, when she was only about five or six years old and basically got the woman he was having an affair with fell pregnant. And so 
he chose that family. And so Ren always felt this slight rejection from her dad and is now going to stay with them on this farm. And whilst there, she meets and bumps into this very hot guy. He works for IndyCar in Indianapolis. He's from a family of farmers in Indiana. And it's this family farm that's been passed down through all these generations. He actually works on IndyCar as a race engineer, but his brother is the farmer, Jonas. And and Ren bumps into Anders on her way home from this bar. She's had a few drinks. It's like under the stars, there are fireflies and fields and a really picturesque setting. And they have a bit of banter, but he keeps her at arm's length. And it's because he's got this, you know, earth shattering secret that he cannot move things forward with her. And it's not until much later in the book that you find out why, but it is a real dilemma. It's an impossible love story. It is, and we're, we certainly won't give away any spoilers here on the Rights for Women podcast because we really want people to go out and get the book and enjoy it. But let me just tell you, Paige, that I had one of those jaw-dropping moments when I got to that bit and went, oh, she's done it again. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone's had it so far. Out of all of the reviews and all of the comments I've had on social media, I don't know anyone who's actually who's landed on what the secret is. So that's that's been quite fun. That's fantastic. Now, I know that the books make you feel emotional too. And I saw some of your footage when you were finishing writing one of the drafts recently. And it really seems like it puts you through the ringer too, which is wonderful. As an author, you're feeling those feels. And of course, that translates to us as the readers picking up that book and also feeling everything that you're hoping that we do. Is that something that you find happens with every book? Or is there some that are just more poignant than others for you to write? I will always cry at some point during every book. And sometimes it's just the ending. Sometimes it's just a sort of release of emotion that I've got to the end and I'll just burst into tears. But in recent years, there's been some element of heartbreak in the novel. And like this one, I think there were about three moments when I broke down and cried, but there was one moment where I just was sobbing my heart out and just felt so much of the kind of pain that the characters are going through. And I think if I'm not feeling it, then I don't write it. Like that's, I always feel it when I'm writing my books. And if I'm not, then, you know, that's when I feel a bit down because I'm just not, the words aren't really coming. And it just feels, I know that I'm capable of writing if I'm not feeling it because I've sometimes just had push forward and then I've gone back and thought, oh no, that's okay, actually. That's not as badly written as I thought it was. But, but on the whole, and especially for the second, I don't know, half of the novel, I'm really invested in these characters. And yeah, I'll just, I'll feel it all. <laughs> Now, as a rural romance author, I particularly love the setting in in your book. I thought that in Only Love Can Hurt Like This, that we had those beautiful fields. We had the peach farm, which is also a pumpkin farm. We had Jonas's maize, which maize being corn, of course. We had the tractors. We had the harvesting and stuff like that. How did you go about researching that? Did you get to go out to Indianapolis and go on to some lovely farms where people pick their own produce and do things like that? Well, I actually lived in Indianapolis for a little while in my 20s. I lived there when I was very small and some of my earliest memories are in Indianapolis because my dad used to be a racing driver. So he raced for the Indy 500 and, and an IndyCar in America. And then we moved to Phoenix for a little while and I was living there, always coming back to Australia for, for Christmases and birthdays. Like We were in Australia for half of the year and the other half of the year we'd live in America and then later in the UK. So it's a it's a place of the world that I'm quite comfortable with. And my dad went back when I was in my 20s, around the time that I was at university, he went back and started running an Indy Lights team out of Indiana and Indianapolis with Stephen Johansson. And I went out there in my 20s and really got to know the city. And I've written about so many rural places that I actually loved going and visiting. 
And I was just thinking about this setting of a farm. I decided I wanted to set my book on a farm and initially it was going to be set in the UK. And I thought that's silly. I haven't written about Indiana yet. And so I always love to write about places I've lived and visited. And suddenly I could just picture it in my mind, the cornfields and the big red barns and fireflies. I used to love the fireflies when I was little. And it just felt like a really beautiful setting for the book. And I did have to do a lot of research still. I spoke to farmers who lived over there and I spoke to the Indiana Department of Agriculture just to talk about the different types of farming for the area. And then obviously, like I say, I was able to write about real places like when they go duck pin bowling and to this bar, this German bar called the Ratzkeller and the arts and antique stores and the actual apartments, the real silk lofts where Anders lives and this really cool converted loft apartment is where my parents used to live. <laughs> so I could really write about, about sort of real places. I reimagined it in my mind, like it's much cooler <laughs> in, in Anders' apartment, but, but it was just nice to be able to lock back into those memories. And it really feels real that way when you feel like you've lived in, lived in a place and you can really write about it from experience. Yeah, and I think that does come through in the book because it did feel like I've not been to that part of America before, but I felt like I was quite well transported across. Paige, for the people that are tuning in at home that might be listening while they're doing a jigsaw puzzle or they're out walking the dog or they're doing some cleaning, which I know are some really popular ways that people will listen to the Rights for Women podcast, can you tell us where you're talking to us from today? Are you in America, in Indianapolis? Are you in Australia or are you in the UK? No, I'm in the UK. <laughs> so I now my permanent home is in Cambridge in the UK. I still come back to Australia. My entire family are Australians. I'm I'm a person of many places <laughs> now. I have an Australian passport and I have a British passport because I was actually born in the UK. But yeah, this is where I'm settled with my family. But we will be back at Christmas and you know, we'll be back again soon. Oh, that's fantastic. So are we likely to see you touring for your books in Australia, Paige? Oh, I hope so. Yeah, maybe for book three. It was the initial sort of idea for, from the publisher. But I guess we'll just see. We'll have to see how it like if it takes off in Australia, the way it's taken off in the UK and America. And I'm still waiting for Australian readers to really get behind my books. But um, yeah, I hope that happens. Yeah, definitely. They're missing out if they're not already reading. And hopefully we find a few more new readers through the podcast. Now, it leads me to another great question. You would know Jane Harper, one of our fabulous Australian exports who writes rural crime. I was lucky enough to interview Jane last year and we were talking about that lovely position where you're in when you see someone reading one of your books. Now, it hasn't happened to me personally. I've only had my son bump into someone at a caravan park who was reading one of my books and he went up and took a photograph. But because obviously you have so many wonderful books out there, have you ever come across somebody that's reading and did you go up to them and say, oh, actually, that's my book. Are you enjoying it? It's so funny. I still haven't. I've had so many friends take photos of people who are reading my books and I still have never actually seen someone like sitting there in the flesh. And I absolutely probably would go up and say, would you like me to sign that? <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I still haven't. It's, it's so strange considering how many books have been sold over here. It's just, it's crazy. That's fantastic. For the record, Jane said she has seen people, but she hasn't been brave enough to go up to them and say, oh, that's my book. <laughs> yeah, I guess it remains to be seen how I'll react. <laughs> Yeah, fingers crossed you stumble across someone really soon, I think, on an aeroplane on the way over to Australia to come visit us. That would just top it off really nicely. <laughs> that would be funny. Someone like sitting there or crying behind their sunglasses on a sun lounger this summer, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Now, one of the things that I loved in the story was the renovation of the Airstream. And I hadn't come across these caravans before, but as you described it, I couldn't help myself. I had to go and Google it and see what they looked like and 
They are very fancy looking caravans. Can you tell us how that subplot came about, please? Oh, they're amazing. I just, I love Airstreams. So I just had this idea of like, that, that for anyone who doesn't know that these amazing they're almost bullet shaped uh, aluminium so the, so the shiny silver caravans and they just look amazing and I just thought that I like camper vanning so you know we've got a retired camper van which is down the end of my garden and that's actually where I write from and then we have another camper van where we travel all around Europe in so I'm, I like that lifestyle anyway and I just had this vision of Ren seeing this flash of silver in this farm that her parents you her dad has only just recently bought it he's only been there for a few months and it's just like underneath this tarp like next to the barn and she's what is that is that that's not an airstream is it and because she's an architect and she's interested in design of course she pulls it off and it's like a 1960s original and it's in a really bad state but it was so fun to write about you know her renovating that and because my husband's an architect I could ask him all the questions that she might also know I remember saying what if she wanted to open it up from the back and he's like you'd have to hinge it at the panel gap and so I was like writing in those conversations imagining her having this conversation with Anders who's an engineer he understands they've got a lot in common she the two of them he's always wanted an airstream he's interested in design and like mid-century architecture and so it was quite fun to be able to write about that. That's fantastic another subplot that really caught my eye and had me dreaming and googling of these beautiful barns the Fredericksons so Anders' parents have got this beautiful property and they've got a lovely barn. Did you have to go far to find some of those or are they the type of things that are actually quite regularly studded through the landscape? Yeah, you see them in Indiana. You see them in, in Midwest America generally, but and, and a lot of them are really old. And I was like Googling why red and stuff. And it used to be, they used to sometimes mix blood into the mixture. It was like to get rid of the rust. And it was just really, really unusual. I didn't end up writing that into the book. I always do so much research and then end up only including a small amount. Or I put like a small amount and then my editors cut that back even more. <laughs> but yeah, you will see them if you go to Indiana. And obviously you can just Google them quite easily. And just like that, the shape of the roof line and stuff is quite, it's, it's yeah, it's really unusual. Lovely, which segues really nicely into the next question I wanted to ask you, Paige. Can you tell us a little bit about your writing process? So do you have a particular writing routine that you follow each day or a strict schedule specifically when you're drafting? It's more a writing routine that I follow each year because I always write my books in the autumn months in the UK. So when the kids go back to school in September, that's when I'll start writing. And hopefully by then I will have done most of my research and, and then, so I have this year, yearly sort of schedule where I'll start to write in September, right through to end of December, January time, and then go through several rounds of edits, then publicize the book, then research the next one, and then start writing that. So it's just this cycle. For the first time though, I, I used to have a different publisher just until quite recently. I was with the same publisher for 15 years. And, and when I got my first book deal, Lucy in the Sky, I remember I got the book deal in September based on three chapters I said to my editor how can I write it by Christmas and we have it out next year and and they went for it and so I basically wrote it in two and a half months when I had a full-time job and then it came out only in April so we, there was such a quick turnaround but because of that and because I've continued to write a book a year with this really tight turnaround I've never stood a chance of having a book release in America because America likes to have a book like a year in advance and they want to really be able to build up and that's obviously, that's what they prefer in the UK too. So when I changed publishers, I said to my new publisher, I'm going to still write a book a year and I will deliver this book in January, but you can take longer to publish it. 
And so that's part, I think that's partly why Only Love Can Help This has really taken off over here because they've had a whole year of building it. They got the big book deal in America, being published over there by Tara Singh Coulson, who was the editor of Where the Cruel Dad Sings. She's a really amazing editor. And now I'm working with two editors on my second book that I've just written for them, Seven Summers. I've actually done rounds of editing with both editors simultaneously. So it's just a whole different thing. And the strangest thing for me is that I'm still stuck. Now I'm really very much stuck in Seven Summers World, but I'm publicising Only Love Can Hurt Like This. So it's what most authors do. Most authors do have a much longer schedule between delivery and the book coming out. But for me, it's all a bit new. I'm having to get my head around going back in time now and publicising the book that I wrote a year ago. Oh, that's fantastic. It sounds like a very busy time. And I love that when you get stuck into the new book that you're working on. And it, it is lovely because it means there's something really strong about that book that's drawing you back to it as well, which is always nice. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I can't wait to share the next one as well. And when can we expect that next Seven Summers? When's that coming? So Seven Summers will be out in April next year. In Australia at the same time? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, that's the plan. Yeah, I can't wait to, for everybody to discover that one. It's probably one of my most heartbreaking novels that I've ever written. But it was just, it's its a love triangle. And so you know that someone's going to get hurt. And that is just, yeah, that was so painful to write. I ended up doing a live at one o'clock in the morning when I just finished it and my family were away. And, and I'd been doing these monthly buddy reads. And so I'd been doing like Instagram live every month just to talk to my readers about when I realised I had 18 months between my my last book coming out, someone I used to know and Only Love Can Hurt Like This coming out. My husband said to me, you've written that many books. Why don't you do monthly buddy read because I always get a group of readers who write to me saying time to start the page two and reread and they start from the beginning and they read all the way through until the new one comes back and comes out so I thought I'll do that with them and so I was just starting to get I felt used to doing lives because a year and a half ago I never in a million years would have got on Instagram and done a live sobbing my face is all red I'm all teary I've got a trace of makeup on my family were away and I was just in such a state and I just thought I'm gonna tell my readers <laughs> So that was like, yeah, that that was fun. So I can't wait for readers to be able to read that book too. Like that's going to be, I think that's one. It's got so many layers and it's told over several years. So that's something that you can really get stuck into and really get to know the characters. Oh, I look forward to that too. And I think that really adds to your authenticity that readers can really feel like they're along for the ride with you as you're writing the book and they can feel it and get invested and excited about it too, which is always good. Yeah, absolutely. I just love, ever, ever since Lucy in the Sky, my very first book, and I remember reading my reviews online and and had so many readers say, I felt like this or I felt like that. And I fell in love with Nathan and all these sort of things. And I was like, that's how I felt when I was writing it. And I've just, over the over time, just come to realise that so long as I'm feeling it and so long as I'm invested and I'm loving what I'm writing, and I do, I'm really stuck in with these characters and I just feel like I'm inside someone's head and experiencing everything that they're experiencing then I know my readers will feel it too. And yeah, they're going to be, Only Love Can Hurt This was an absolute roller coaster. This one had me, like I say, really sobbing. And I've had so many readers write to me saying, I was like crying behind my sunglasses on a sun lounger and I was on the plane and someone was looking at me and my husband walked in they was like, what's wrong? Who's died? <laughs> so, it's nice. I think it's nice to go on a journey with a character and to be that invested that you feel like you're you're watching a movie. That's what I want for people. It to be as easy and so easy to connect with the storyline that it's just you barely even feel like you're reading, like you're just lost and caught up in the storyline. So that's how I feel when I'm writing. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to ask is Anders had made a cameo appearance in, was it Chasing Daisy that we met Anders? 
You haven't met Anders before. No, there's a mention of a character from Chasing Daisy in this book. Ah, that's where it was. I knew I recognised someone from Chasing Daisy. That's right. Yeah, Luis Castro, who's who's a racing driver that Anders refers to, is not a real racing driver. So I was like imagining the American readers reading this and sort of thinking, who's he? He's not three times <laughs> in 500 champion. She's got that wrong. So I had to write in my acknowledgements. By the way, you're not going mad. This is, yeah, this is a character from my third book. So it's nice to, I like to reference things. There is another really small reference to a character from Johnny Be Good. And it's been really funny, just like a few readers have picked up on that and they've written to me, is this person, is this like the person that Meg worked for? And she's just an architect. It's just like the smallest, smallest cameo. But it's just lovely when the readers remember and connect to the characters to such an extent that they know everything about them. They know more about my characters than I do. (laughs) They'll remember secondary characters and stuff. I know really, really, I know my main characters really well. I could tell you what any one of them are doing at any one time. And I feel like they're also still living on in this parallel universe. But but yeah, sometimes I forget like the friend of the friend or something like that. I can't remember who people are called and end up using the same name again in another book. And then people are like, is this person? Oh no, <laughs> that's just a name to reuse. <laughs> I do find that I have a lot of receptionists all called Nancy or Cindy or Rhonda. I'm not sure how I managed to do that, but I have to weed them out because they keep seem to, seeming to pop up. <laughs> That's hilarious. All for me, the name Sarah just always wants to go into my books. <laughs> Sarah, no, <laughs> and I don't know. I think I've probably only got one Sarah now in my books because I somehow managed to. But that's so funny. I don't think I've ever had a Nancy, so maybe I'll start stealing some of your names. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Now we've only got a little while left to talk. I've got a couple of questions I wanted to squeeze in. An Australian book recommendation. Do you read many Aussie books, and if so, can you recommend one to us, Paige? Yeah, this one is really easy. I was actually sent it by my former Australian editor at Penguin because this author has got an American book deal and it's coming out in America in November. And apparently the publisher in America had asked if I would quote for it. So I was like really flattered. And she just said she writes heartbreaking books like you do that have a bit of a lighthearted element to them too. Anyway, it's called The Last Love Note by Emma Gray. And I absolutely loved it. Have you read it? Yes, and I adored it. It was fantastic. It was so good. It was written, it's about a character who who has lost her husband prematurely, like he is young and he had an illness. And two years after his death, and she's starting to find love again and find her way in the world again. And she has a young, young son. And it's just, it was so beautifully written. And it does have light touches. Like you never, I found myself choking up on several occasions because you're really connected to the story. And it's, I love being inside a character's head. So it's told in the first person. But equally, it doesn't ever drag you down too much considering the considering the content. So, yeah, it was like my favourite type of emotional love story. Like, I loved it. I can fully vouch for that one too. I absolutely adored it. I think Emma did a wonderful job, especially for a debut, which is just out of the ballpark. <laughs> absolutely. She actually was writing about experience too because her, she lost her husband prematurely. So that is like another level of, wow, the fact that you can put that into a story and write about that real life experience when that must have been so painful. Yes. Um, so that was like an easy quote to give. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, what's your top tip for aspiring writers who dream of one day having a book on the shelves like behind you or maybe a billboard in the middle of London? 
<laughs> the most important thing is just to write. Honestly, you just need to write. It's funny, I've actually, I was asked last year to write, to do a writing course by a company called Domestico, which is this huge sort of company, it translates into nine different languages and makes it available to 30 countries worldwide. And it's super, super cheap. Like it's really reasonable, reasonably priced. And so what I like about it is that it's like really accessible to everyone. And that is like one of my main things is you can't edit nothing. You can always make a book better at the end of the day. You just need to be able to edit something. So you just need to keep going. Yeah. But if there are any aspiring writers who want like a nice, cheap, I think reasonably good quality writing course, then check out Domestica or, or, or look at the links on my websites. Cause I'm, um, yeah, a lot of work went into that. It was one of the most stressful things I've ever had to do. It's like, I know how to write because I've written 20 books, but my God, trying to teach it and trying to break down your process into an understandable kind of all these lessons was really such a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Now, I like to do the fast five. So you have to answer these very quickly without thinking too much about them. Do you like ebook, audiobook, or paperback? Ebook. <laughs> I know that's not a popular one, but I read all my books on my Kindle now. I just I find it so much easier. And just I like being able to have a light at night time. And I love that I can take this tiny device and have so many books at my disposal, like just be able to go anywhere with it and always have a library full of books. It makes me really happy. But I know that's an unpopular answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair enough. It's what you like. Do you use writing programs or do you use Word? Word. Yeah, I always write a word. I just always have, yeah. And now I find it quite hard to change things now that I'm used to it. But yeah, word. Do you have music or silence or ambient noise whilst writing? Um, music usually, unless I'm editing and then I need silence. But yeah, I love, I write music sometimes into my books. And I just, I'll put on a playlist that is suitable for the sort of scenes that I'm writing. If they're at a bar and they've got a grungy bar music playing and it just adds to the atmosphere when I'm writing. I really do feel like I'm inside the character's head and experiencing that, that same scenario that they're in. Which reminds me, do you have a playlist, a link to a playlist for Only Love Can Hurt Like This? Yes, actually. My American publisher did a Spotify playlist for me and that's on my Instagram at Author. It's right at the top in my highlights. So you can just click and add it. And I've done like a series of videos where I explain which song refers to which scene. So hopefully people might find that interesting. Lovely. Bookmarks or dog earring your pages? I suppose if you read with Kindle, you probably don't have to worry about that anymore. If I am reading a book, I'm afraid I dog ear the pages, which again, I know will be super, super unpopular. I have readers who just won't, they don't want the spine to crack at all. Like they're so careful about reading. But yes, I'm afraid I dog ear pages. (laughs) (laughs) And the last very important question, what is at the heart of your writing page two? Oh, the heart of my writing is my heart. Like I literally, I write my books so much from the heart. You know, what I'm what I'm feeling, you will feel, I hope, as you're reading them. I just want you to really be able to connect to the same emotions that I'm feeling and and just go on a beautiful sort of roller coaster of an impossible love story. So that's my hope for my readers. Wonderful. Well, it's been so great having you as our guest on the podcast today, Paige. Oh, thank you so much, Maya. It's been really lovely to talk to you. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks very much to Paige for being our special guest today and for Penguin Books for bringing us Only Love Can Hurt Like This. You can find it now in all good bookstores. Stay well, stay warm and read more books. Welcome to Rights for Women and thank you so much for doing that chat with Paige Toon. It was a really interesting chat and so good to have Paige on the podcast. So thank you for that brainwave as well. 
Yeah, no worries, Pam. I really like Paige's writing. As you can tell from our discussion, it's there's so many great things that you can learn from other writers. And I do primarily stick with Australian authors. And then when I do jump out into the world of international storytellers, I think I should do that a bit more often every now and then and always learn some great things. So thank you. Paige was a wonderful guest. Yeah, no, I agree. I tend to read mainly Australian authors, which is fabulous. Like we love our Australian authors and we've got so many brilliant ones here. But it's really nice to just dip out every now and then, isn't it? And just to try something a little different. And I know you've read quite a few of Paige's books. So it was great to have you on the microphone there asking the questions. Yeah. And I think the other thing is we can almost claim her as being Australian because she has spent a bit of time as well as living in the UK, living in America and Australia. So we can almost claim a third of her, I think. Yeah, I reckon that's fair enough. And and I love the way that Paige really makes you swoon when you're reading about her stories. I love the small town vibe. There was a lot of really great twisty family dynamics, which I always enjoy reading about. So a great choice. I think the listeners of Rights for Women will pick up a lot. Yeah, definitely something different. And speaking of small town, you have your own, whoop, I've got to get that around the right way. <laughs> I can never do this. Your own small town, reasonably new release happening with Kookaburra Cottage. Congratulations. Thank you, Pam. It's always lovely to have a new book out in the world, isn't it? To fawn over and see in bookshops and see people taking on their holidays and whatnot. It really warms the heart to read the reviews and see that people are enjoying it all across the country. Yeah, and another gorgeous cover, of course, too. You, your publisher always, and you, always have brilliant covers. They just really capture the heart of your writing. So this one is actually a new series, isn't it, or a new set of stories. So can you tell us a little bit about this particular set of stories? We've left the McIntyre sisters behind, and they're still, of course, on the bookshelves, available for everybody to, to read and enjoy. But we've got a new set of characters starting off with Kookaburra Cottage. So can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, absolutely. It was both hard and exciting to veer away from the McIntyre sisters and that Western districts of Victoria setting that I'd set the first four books in. But with Kookaburra Cottage, the wonderful thing about that is that I get to go home because I'm originally a South Australian girl. I've spent half my life in South Australia, half my life in Victoria. And I had so many wonderful readers and, of course, a lot of family back in SA. So it was very nice to be able to put a winery setting, a bit of a fixer-upper project. We've got a whole new cast of characters, possibly with a cameo from some people that they readers will know and love from previous books. And, again, as I said with Paige, I love and I know that readers love those little cameo appearances. And Kookaburra Cottage features April and she is from a winemaking family. They've got a beautiful little boutique winery over in the limestone coast. And Connor is a British chap heading over to Australia to try and learn from the experts. And it's lovely just to throw in all these different things that I like writing about and I like doing in my own life. The cooking, the gardening, the show baking are all pretty strong themes in this one. And Luckily for me, it seems to have been pretty well received. The people that were sad about leaving behind the McIntyres have fallen in love with April Lacey and Connor Jamison. Oh, that's brilliant. And just you, when you use that frame, limestone. The limestone coast. The limestone coast. It's just so evocative. And the whole setting with the winery and all that sort of thing. So when you were, I guess, probably I'm imagining midway through the last book of the McIntyre sisters and 
start as we do, starting to think about the next one before we even finish the one we're working on. What was it about that area or that setting that kind of grabbed your attention and you thought, yep, that's what I really want to work on, that's where I want to set the book? Yeah, it was definitely the wineries, Pam. I know that there's so many different aspects to farming. And in my first four stories, we focused on traditional sheep farming. We talked about a bush nursing centre. We had a flower farm and so on and so forth. So I thought, what can I do as a real point of difference in my new story? Wineries. It makes such great sense. There's a beautiful award-winning many wineries over in that South Australia. It's the bottom southeastern corner of South Australia. Coonawarra, Panola, for people that know the area. They'll notice that I've made a fake town name in Kookaburra Cottage. So I've called it Penwarra, but anyone who's in the know will know that's that beautiful Coonawarra wine growing district. And it really is renowned. I was thinking about that as soon as I decided I'd set it in South Australia. I thought, it's either going to be a crayfishing a fisherman, someone who goes out on the cray boats because we have plenty of them around home, or it's going to be a winery. And I thought I can do lots of hard, <laughs> you know, very diligent research in this area quite easily. So I have been out on a crayfishing boat, but goodness me, it's quite attractive, the idea of visiting some wineries and setting it in that slightly more glamorous countryside. But I won't rule out a crayfishing storyline in future books. Oh, that's a great idea, actually, and something really different. But, yeah, I agree. I'm all for the winery. And tell us a little more about the characters in this book and then, I guess, how you're going to create that kind of same vibe that you did with the McIntyre sisters. I'm wondering, like, after spending so much time with the one family, was it challenging? Was it hard to move on and come up with a whole new set of characters or was that kind of exciting? Had you had enough of working with those same characters that you'd had? And obviously each of those four books in the McIntyre series had a different plot line and can be read as a standalone book. But, yeah, I'm just curious about when you're coming up with ideas for a new kind of set of stories, how hard is that to let go of the old ones and then to come up with something completely different? It's a little bit of both, a little bit of everything, I suppose you'd say. It was hard, but it was liberating. It was great when it came to uh, having a blank canvas with what I was going to put together with their pack stories and who's walking in the door at any given moment. But then, that, of course, that gives you a whole set of problems where you don't have this brain bank of knowledge of when they're walking down the street or they're going for a vanilla slice at the shop, what they're going to come up against in the different gossipers that might call into the shops and whatnot. But I had a lot of fun with April. She came to me in a few different variations. I could see a picture of her first and the cover model they've chosen is very similar in my head to what she looks like. Connor, I wanted him to have a big, warm, fuzzy family back in the UK. And so he's got that that pool as well where his family's overseas. They really love him. They Zoom him regularly. He's got the younger sisters that are just little troublemakers. And we've got these beautiful snippets from his mum and dad trying to get familiar on Zoom. So that was a lot of fun, getting that family dynamic down pat. And with April... The way that I'm trying to work this next or new series of books is it's based around a friendship circle. So the first book is April's story. The second book is Lauren's story. Now, she's the best friend of April throughout Kookaburra Cottage and she works in radio. Throughout the book, she's she's ha- has a few romantic liaisons, but 
I probably wouldn't give any spoilers away as to say who she's officially ending up with at the end of the next book, which will come out next June. And we've already settled on a title. It's getting the cover design underway, even though I'm only still finishing off that (laughs) second draft. (laughs) And so that'll be called Wallaby Lane. So we'll have Kookaburra Cottage, Wallaby Lane, and I'm not sure who the star of book three or four will be yet, but I'm trying to put together a pretty large cast of friends and characters throughout the story. So lots to choose from. It's a, I'm sport for choice. It's such a great idea. You had that, the set of the four sisters in the first loosely. It's a series, but it's not a series, isn't it? As I said, you can read them standalone, but you've also got that familiarity when you come back to the stories and you meet the characters, some of the characters again in, in the next book. But now to be working with the friendship idea, of course, gives you a whole new set of issues and topics that you can delve into as well, all those things that go along with friendships long and short term. So it's a fabulous idea to be able to do that, I think. And I think the thing that I've really enjoyed with writing this new series is that they don't all have the same family background because obviously if you've got four sisters, they've got the same things happen to their mum and the same things happen to their dad throughout the story. So you're a little bit hamstrung in a way. Whereas if you've got four non-linked or three or four non-linked characters, then it gives you a little bit more freedom and leeway. So I'm having fun playing with that at the moment. Yeah, really, doesn't it? And you can go into a whole lot of different backgrounds and family situations and backstories, which I can imagine it will be a lot of fun to play with something different. Did you find that you had any challenges with this book or with the idea of starting a new kind of series? Yeah, I did. I grappled a fair bit with the main character's occupation. I wasn't sure exactly what Connor was doing in Australia and I went off on a bit of a wild goose chase whilst I was researching Paperbark Hill, which came out last year in 2022. Because that was set on a dahlia farm and my research took me to different flower farms and down lots of rabbit holes, I learned that there are English rose grafting specialists that come out from England for a couple of months a year, every year, to a rose farm that's not far from our house here. Mm-hmm. And they're the specialists. They get in there and they do the grafting job. And I read about it in the newspaper and I thought, oh, yeah, that would be a great main character. So I started writing Kookaburra Cottage with that in mind for Connor. And then a couple of things became apparent pretty quickly. Generally, those rose grafters are only here for a set period. So they're only here for a little while. And if they decide to stay on, what's going to keep them for longer? They can't get another job rose grafting because that's only such a small window. And if you're an expert that's been posted all around the world, why would you give that up? just to stay on in Australia. Then I made him a greenskeeper. And then I realized again, that just, it didn't feel sexy enough for my main male character. So he got an upgrade. And of course, the obvious choice was, why wouldn't you make him a winemaker, Maya? Make things easier for yourself. You're saying this in a winery. (laughs) The occupation is so important for the character, isn't it? Because it shows a lot about them, but then it also is putting them into situations where you're going to build storylines around their job so it's hugely important and I've just fallen down that trap with the second draft of Wallaby Lane I've done the same thing I've written a character who I'm not that thrilled with their occupation it's just not bringing it to the story and I need my main leads to have those strong career drive or or sometimes the opposite they really don't like the job that they're in and they want to change out of it which is also a great narrative tool but 
yeah, I so <laughs> you just make a lot of work for yourself when you make a bad decision about their occupation, as you would well know, Pam. It, yeah. There's a lot of unpicking that takes place. <laughs> yes, definitely. When we're talking about your writing process and you, you are on a book a year contract, so, you know, you are pretty much finishing one book, starting the next. Are you doing revisions and edits at the same time as you're working on a new storyline as well? How do you go about dividing up your time and also dividing up your kind of headspace when you're doing that sort of thing? Yeah, I am, Pam. I Previous years, I've worked right over Christmas and I've always been doing drafting the new book when the copy edits and sometimes when the structural edits have come through, I'll be working on that first draft of the next year's manuscript. So it does take a lot of brain space and I find myself writing the main character's name different because I've got Lauren in the new book that I'm working on. So sometimes when I'm talking about the promotional aspects of Kookaburra Cottage, I'll talk about Lauren and Clem and Jack and nobody really knows much about those characters because they're not the main characters in Kookaburra Cottage. So it is funny, your brain has to kind of change gears. I'm not sure I've got it down pat and my process does seem to change book to book with Kookaburra Cottage. I did a lot of rewriting and I thought I'd change it this year by doing some really structured drafting for Wallaby Lane, which I did, and that worked really well. A very comprehensive outline of about almost 10,000 words for yeah, Wallaby Lane. I got that completed last year while I was editing Kookaburra Cottage. And then I did a huge chunk of writing to get that first draft down for the new book. Yep. But now, again, I'm still doing a lot of rewriting in the second draft and goodness knows what's to come in the structural edits. So each book still seems to present pretty differently and gives me good challenges. But I think the joy is putting those sentences together and really writing those scenes that you go, oh, I just loved writing about that bit. Mm. Like, take me back to the beach fishing scene because... Oh, I swoon every time I think about that. And little special scenes will stay with you. They're really poignant when you're writing them. And then they're also the things that people will contact you and say, oh, I loved the beach fishing scene or I loved it when they went into the show hall and they saw what all the baking looked like and the entries were on the table and the ribbons were out and all these happy people that had put a lot of heart and soul into their baking get rewarded for their efforts publicly or publicly shamed in some cases. <laughs> and that, that was a lot of fun writing about those scenes in Kookaburra Cottage because it doesn't always go to plan as you would know, know at country shows. It's not like the Melbourne show or the Sydney show where everything is hugely professional. There's a lot of pride and joy that goes into it, but there are still cakes that aren't perfect and some that might be a little bit charred or a bit crumbly on the show tables on show day. Yeah, yeah. And just with your process, Mayor, I'm curious, are you someone that has paper everywhere with notes or notebooks? Do you have things up on your wall or on a whiteboard or index cards or are you completely on, on the computer? How do you work all that idea type part of it and the plotting out of the storyline? Yeah, I love a pen and paper. Actually, particularly, I love pencil and paper, Pam. Me that too. Me oh. too. I write everything in pencil. I love it's it. Beautiful. I love the sound of it. I love the feel of it on the paper. You can rub it out if you need to. <laughs> yep. No, I love it. So I've got a notebook dedicated to each novel and that's where I write down those early thoughts. Here's some ideas for names. Here's some ideas for stories. Here's what the main conflict could be. I'd like to include a goat called Gunther. Mm. I want to make sure that I've got the show baking covered and remember that story where someone stole someone's recipe 
and then made it the next year and beat them at it. Little snippets like that I write down in this notebook. And then once I get into proper planning mode, then it's I turn to the computer and type it all out. And then once I have a bit of a mess that I need to fix, then I go back to the pen and paper and I'm looking over my shoulder here. I've got a timeline because that's one of the things that I find tricky when things happen. Oh gosh, it's supposed to be Christmas. They're not going to be harvesting potatoes at Christmas time, (laughs) are they? And putting them on the show table, they'd be more likely to have fresh eggs or whatever it is that's in season. So for me to have right next to my desk here, autumn, here are the key, the three keen things that happen in autumn. Spring, this is the three key key things. So I do that and then I just remind myself who my characters are because you do forget when you get in the nitty-gritty of the scene level, you forget your bigger picture of what they're supposed to be doing in the story and what their character arc is. And then I go back through and then I write it and rewrite it and go through and, again, make notes in pen or in pencil and put post-it notes everywhere and then try and forget everything that I've written down and then go back to it. And you know what I find so amazing is that sometimes I won't have looked at those notes, but I will be going through the manuscript and my brain knows, right, here is where she is going to the shops and she's going to try on that outfit for the job interview. I've got a vague memory of somewhere writing a note that Mm -hmm. she should be doing that or I'd written a scene and I deleted a scene, but my brain wants that back in there. And so without even looking at those notes, I'm just automatically putting it in there going, this sounds familiar. Yeah. And then you stop and you think, oh, yeah, that's actually right. I, this is deja vu. I've written this scene already. <laughs> yeah. I think just that physical act of noting it down, it imprints it on your brain, doesn't it? And mm. Like you say, then you automatically do it when you get up to the right point. It's part of that magic of the whole writing process that we are involved in. And what about character bios, Maya? Are you someone that does character bios like before you start or during the process or are you just basically developing the character on the page as you write the story? Again, a bit of both. So I will have that little notebook with early ideas on either key features or key habits. And I'll do a little brainstorming thing. There's always a double page in these notebooks that's got main characters' names, a lovely little colourful bubble around them, and then a stick that goes to their grandfather. And whether we call him Pop or Gramps or whatever we call him, and then the niece and then one of their hobbies. So I do, I certainly have that on paper. And I do go back and I fill that in retrospectively as well. So I take bits of it as I learn things about the characters and what they're up to. And and I really do feel like that is the beautiful journey that we go on when we're writing and telling these stories to ourselves first before we tell them to someone else. And and I think that's the addictive bit. Yeah, yeah, that's the fun part, isn't it? (laughs) It's hitting the walls and the blocks and everything that's the not fun part and then having to go and work out how you get around them. (laughs) I agree. It's been really interesting having that little insight into your writing process, Mayor. Kookaburra Cottage is out now and I actually was lucky enough, here we go again, to score a couple of copies of this from your lovely publisher. So I'm going to do a giveaway of Kookaburra Cottage on the Rights for Women Instagram page and Facebook page. Fantastic. And that'll be coming up the week following the this podcast going out. Everybody can keep a lookout for that. And it's always a pleasure to chat to you and lovely to have you on the podcast chatting to Paige and hopefully we'll hear from you again very soon with another guest. 
Wonderful. Thank you, Pam. And thanks to all the listeners for tuning in. We are so lucky to have you on our airwaves doing this wonderful podcast. I pick up so many things every time I listen to your episodes, Pam. So thank you from me and from all the listeners and also to everyone for tuning in and making it happen. We as readers and writers really appreciate finding out how other people do it. Oh, thanks, Maya. That's lovely. Yeah, I love getting those tips too when I'm talking to the writers. Good for me as well, but thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks, Thanks, Pam. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>